0: You're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount so long, look what happened. (laughs) My Sermon on the Mount fell out of my Bible. (laughs) That's a good indication, isn't it? (laughs) All right. As we mentioned in our lesson last week, the Lord Jesus is now finished with the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. The main body concluded with what? The golden rule in chapter 7, verse 12. So from verse 13 to uh, the end of the chapter, chapter 7, he is concerned with just one thing, and that is stressing the absolute importance of entering into the kingdom of God by the straight gate, which is through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. He extended an invitation to all men when he said, enter in at the straight gate, which leadeth to life. He also warned his listeners about the wide gate and the broad way, which may be more alluring and may contain the bigger crowds, but is the way that leads to destruction. Now, in the verses for this lesson, which are verses 15 to 23, and I've called this lesson The Two Trees, although there's probably a better title But I was going with the two gates, the two trees, the two builders. But there's probably a better title for this. But anyway, in these verses, the Lord warns about two of the most serious dangers that keep people from entering onto the right road, the narrow road. And I don't think it's going to hurt any of us to remind ourselves about these two very serious dangers. First of all, in verses 15 to 20, he warns us about false prophets And then in verses 21 to 23, he's going to warn us about false professions. And each of these two subjects really could be an entire lesson in and of themselves. So this is the only introduction I'm going to have. We really need to just leap right into this lesson because there's so much material to cover. First of all, let's look at verses 15 to 20 as the Lord warns us to beware of false prophets. So look with me at his words starting in verse 15 where he said... Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their what? Fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. There have always been false prophets posted along the broad way to destruction to persuade people that they are on the right way the narrow way, and to convince them that they don't need to worry or bother with that narrow-minded invitation of the gospel message given by the Christians. For as long as God has had his true prophets, the great deceiver and father of lies, Satan, has had his false prophets. And sadly, these false prophets have always found men with ready and willing ears, ears that uh, want to be tickled with words that pacify them into thinking that they are not so sinful as the Bible says that they are, and that they can live on the pleasurable, self-satisfying Broadway and still wind up in some kind of a glorified state of bliss, or that they can somehow earn their way into God's presence by some kind of a, a religious work system. So there've always been false prophets and there have always been false teachers because there have always been a large there has always been a large demand for them. Most people don't want to hear the truth. Most people do not want to hear the truth. They say basically don't bother me with the facts. Tell me what I want to hear. People prefer to hear words that are pleasant. They prefer to hear words that stroke their ego. They like to hear about positive thinking. They like to hear about possibility thinking. And you are God thinking. And uh, that's the same expand your mind to Godhood type of uh, lie that Satan first used in the garden with Eve, isn't it? You know, expand your mind until you attain Godhood. People like that kind of message. They like the all roads lead to God Kind of a message, don't they? And get in touch with the Spirit's teaching or get in touch with your own inner light. They like anything, basically, that doesn't talk about being poor in spirit or mournful over sin. They like anything that avoids humility and meekness, anything other than dying to self or uh, decreasing so that christ might increase anything that doesn't involve taking up your own cross and following the lord jesus the masses you see would much rather hear messages that tell them that they can make their world and themselves into basically anything that they want to be or that they want the world to be men prefer to hear for example the The message of the Mormons that says men may become gods. And the New Age claim that man is an emerging god and simply must permit the divine within him to shine forth. Men on the broad road like such messages as given by the Swami Satchitananda. That's a name. (laughs) Who was the one time... Integral Yoga Institute head president who said this, talk about altering God's word this is what he said, blessed are those who purify their consciousness for they shall see themselves as God isn't that a perversion of the uh, of the beatitude about pure in, being pure in heart, men like messages such as given by the Maharishi Mahe, Maya, <laughs> Maharishi Mahesh Yogi you try saying it <laughs> <laughs> who said <clears throat> be still and know that you are God a perversion of Psalm 4610 men prefer the teaching of the false prophets of cosmic evolution and those false prophets in the academic circles of postmodernism, filling our university system who claim that the whole concept of God is a social idea invented or manufactured by man himself, and therefore all that really exists is what is in one's own mind. Thus the individual's ideas are true, simply because he thinks them. What you think is what is true, and that's up to each individual. The most lamentable, the saddest trend, however, <clears throat> is that the notion of God is skewed even within the professing church. The God and the Christ of Scripture has, in much of Christendom, been almost completely lost. Em- the emphasis is instead on, uh, is being placed on needs, one's felt needs and health and wealth, and uh, one popular movement even denies that God is capable of knowing the future. Can you imagine that? What kind of God would he be if he couldn't, if he didn't know the future? Some teach that, that Christ, and this is within the church, okay, this is within Christendom, some teach that Christ is not the only way. I remember being in a mainline denominational church and having one of the elders of the church say that, point blank, that Jesus Christ was not the only way. Maybe perhaps he was the way for the Western world, but who were we to say that Buddha or Confucius or somebody else was the way for the, uh, Confucianism was a way for the Eastern world? Can you imagine? I mean, that is a direct denial Of Scripture. That's a direct denial of the Lord's own words when He said, No man cometh to the Father but by me. Our current generation chooses to primarily meet its own spiritual needs by cafeteria style. You know, selecting fragments of Christianity, what they like about Christianity, and then mixing it with Scientology and psychology and personal experiences, and a little bit of Hinduism, and a little bit of Buddhism, and any number of notions derived from other religions and philosophies. Thus, although the larger number of people continue to say that they believe in God, you know, they always give us the statistics, they go around and ask America. Nobody's ever asked me, but they're asking somebody out there. If they believe in God, and especially in this country, the vast majority of people say, yes, they believe in God. Yet their conception of him and of Christ is as diverse as the items that you can find on the shelves in Walmart. Even among the high statistics of people who claim to be Christian, many are not truly regenerated. This isn't anything new to you, is it? You know that. That's not shocking news I'm giving to you. Dr. Kent Hughes says in his book... He says, sadly, it really is quite easy to be accepted or to be accorded the status of Christian without being born again. The process is essentially cultural. That is, if you will work at displaying certain cultural traits, you will be accepted. How? Here is how you do it. First, work on your vocabulary. Biblical history records that when the Gileadites and the Ephraimites were warring, the Gileadites developed a password to detect Ephraimites, who when captured pretended to be Gileadites. The word shibboleth, which the Ephraimites, who had trouble with the sh sound, if you ever know some people from other cultures, other language groups can't pronounce certain words, Word combinations? Well, the uh, Ephraimites couldn't go shh. When they tried to go shh, it came out shh. And it worked perfectly, therefore, on this unsuspecting enemy, much to their dismay and their demise. When they couldn't pronounce the word, they, the, uh, their captives knew that they were pretending to be Gide- uh, Gileadites. He says, uh, Dr. Hughes says, we Christians have our shibboleths. But they are unfortunately rather easy to pick up. In other words, they're easy to use. They're easy to pronounce. He says they are words like fellowship and brother and sister and born again. Use these words with the right inflection and you are in. End of quote. The Apostle Paul, remember, warned the church at Rome to beware of those false prophets who propagate their teachings. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and do what? Avoid them. Avoid people like that, for they are For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, meaning their own flesh, and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. The Apostle Paul warned us to not believe every spirit, but to do what? Test them, to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many, many, not just a few, But many false prophets, he said, have gone out into the world. That's scary. Many. When Paul was leaving Ephesus, he told the elders of that church, he said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise. Meaning what? From within the church, men shall arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. In other words, he's saying, be on your guard, be alert. And then we also have Peter, who wrote, "There are false. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies." even denying the lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction that's in second peter 2 1 and by the way that is a very good verse to use against limited atonement i don't know if you even follow when i say some of these things but if we're going to be aware of false prophets and what's going on in our churches we need to understand church doctrine so i know sometimes this bible study might get a little heavy for some people and they say well i don't need to know all that but there. There is a, a doctrine which is called limited atonement, which, which means that Jesus, they believe Jesus only died for those who are saved, the elect. He did not die for the sins of the whole world. Um, but this verse, there are many verses which I believe refute that doctrine. I believe his blood was shed for the sins of the whole world and that therefore whosoever will may come to him in faith and be and believe. But this verse that I just quoted you, Second Peter 2, 1, talks about false prophets. And it says, even denying the Lord that bought them. Well, they, they were bought. He shed his blood for them. But false prophets aren't saved, are they? No. So this refutes limited atonement. It definitely does. And those who believe in limited atonement usually avoid this verse. <laughs> All right, so anyway, that was a footnote. That was free. We find that not only have false prophets uh, been with man since the beginning, but they will increase in the latter days. The Lord's words in the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, it's the book of Revelation in a nutshell, by the way, the Olivet Discourse, and we'll get to that one of these years. <laughs> uh, it refers to the time right before the Lord's second coming. And it speaks, Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse of many false Christs and false prophets who will, with great signs and wonders, deceive so many that if it were possible, they would even deceive you and I, the elect. Of course, we won't be there at that time because this is speaking about during the Tribulation. There will be many, many false Christs, even more than there are now. So because false teachers are rampant, In this world that we live in and will become even more rampant in the latter days in the in the tribulation, um, people need to know how to recognize them, which, by the way, is not always easy to do, especially from with when they come from within Christendom, because they appear to us in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. They give us the impression of being believers of God and his word. They appear pleasant. They appear positive and loving. And they use their shibboleth terminology very well. You see, Satan has found that he works far more effectively in the church when he counterfeits truth than when he openly denies it. There are many false prophets today who appear as pastors... Evangelists, healers, even uh, Bible college professors, um, etc. Their character is described by the Lord Jesus as wolves. Wolves who disguise themselves as something other than what they really are. Otherwise, you see, their wolf character would repel people, wouldn't it? In, In the church, wolves scare people away, especially sheep. However, being disguised as a sheep makes them appear harmless, and it makes them even appear holy, because sheep are used to describe the true flock of God. A wolf wouldn't be allowed into the sheepfold, but a wolf who is disguised as a sheep has a good possibility of being accepted into the fold. Error does not usually come openly especially within Christendom. The devil does not come, no matter how many pictures you have seen to the contrary, the devil does not come dressed in red with horns and a tail and carrying a pitchfork, does he? That would be too obvious. Rather, he and his dupes come clothed in some righteous-looking robe as angels of light in order to deceive and thus be effective in pushing people right on down the broad road to their destruction. The scribes and the Pharisees were just such examples of false prophets who disguised themselves as servants of righteousness and Judas. In the pretense of, of uh, leading and caring, caring for God's people, what did they really do? They really led them further and further away from God's truth and the straight gate. They were blind leaders of the blind, and they altogether fell into the ditch. They were really only interested in themselves, as we have been seeing. In general, there were some exceptions, but in general, the scribes and Pharisees and other uh, religious rulers of Israel were only interested in in themselves. We find that they, they were a proud group. They were very self-righteous. They were, uh, a lot of them, quite greedy, monetarily speaking. And they cared little to nothing about the common people. When Jesus came along and revealed them as deceitful hypocrites, what did they seek to do? Eliminate him. They sought to murder him, which, of course, they were eventually successful in accomplishing, all in accordance with God's plan. The Lord said that the way to determine a true prophet from a false prophet is to judge his what? His fruit. Twice. Once in verse 16 and again in verse 20, Jesus tells his listeners, you shall know them by their fruits. So we are to be fruit inspectors. The purpose of a fruit tree is what? To produce or bear fruit. Fruit. It doesn't matter how much cool and appealing shade that the tree might provide if it bears bad fruit, does it? We had, in growing up, <clears throat> I lived in the same home for 26 years <clears throat> when I was a child. And we had, um, well, I say that because... I was 26 when I got married. I really didn't live there when I went to college, you know, etc. cetera. But uh, that was my home, basically, for the first 26 years of my life. And there was a, uh, a beautiful fruit tree in our side yard, and there was another beautiful fruit tree in the backyard. And my mother said this beautiful fruit tree in the front yard was my sister's, and the other one was mine. I don't know what my brother got, but anyway. <laughs> the fruit tree in the side yard, which belonged to my sister, had gor- gorgeous leaves... Uh, just it was a big beautiful tree that you could sit under um, get out of the sun it was a gorgeous tree but it was a crab apple tree which was appropriate for my sister (laughs) but it was gorgeous my tree was not nearly as pretty in the backyard, not nearly as pretty, but oh, it had golden, delicious apples that were out of this world. And why did I use that example? <laughs> I don't know, but the one was beautiful, but you couldn't eat the fruit. The purpose of a fruit tree isn't, you know, to provide shade or to, uh, you know, for the color of its leaves or budding flowers. If it pro- produces fruit that is bitter to the taste and full of worms, it's really Useless, it's no good. In other words, a fruit tree is judged by that which it produces and not by its appearance. The Lord was using this illustration to teach that it is the same of a prophet or a teacher. We know whether he is true or false, not so much by his appearance or by how many sit under the influence of his ministry or even sometimes by his words. Because people can use biblical language and have completely different definitions for such critical words as sin. You need to understand what somebody's definition is of sin. Or hell. Or God. Or Christ. Uh, So that's not how we determine. But we we know them by their fruits. By that which is produced in their own lives. Anyone who is truly righteous... According to the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the context for this passage. Anyone who's truly righteous according to the Sermon on the Mount standards of righteousness will manifest forth the fruit of righteousness. As we learn throughout our look at this sermon, everything that is truly righteous and godly begins where? In the heart, in the inner attitudes, and in the motives, and in the inner ambition and morality of the heart. That which is in a man's heart cannot be hidden for very long. It escapes sooner or later from his mouth or from his lifestyle. Those who are truly saved will give evidence of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. False prophets and false teachers can manage to disguise or to hide they're bad fruit for a while, you know, behind their pious face and their ecclesiastical coverings or their biblical-sounding language. But eventually, that which is really in the heart is going to escape and raise its ugly head. Corrupt theology always, sooner or later, results in corrupt lifestyle. In 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19, the apostle Peter said that those who are deceiving prophets will speak out arrogant words of vanity. They will be enticed by their own intelligence and by their own fleshly desires. They will promise freedom in what they teach, but they themselves are slaves of their own pride and their own corruption. A true preacher, a true prophet of God, or spokesman of God, is going to give evidence that the deepest desire of his life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He may fail to always you know, live right, but the desire is, to, to, is there to be righteous. The desire is there. there. There will be some degree of beatific virtue visible in the true spokesman for God. He will be bound to demonstrate humility when he rightly believes in the holiness of God and the utter depravity of his own sinfulness and his total helplessness apart from the Son of God's death upon the cross to deliver him from judgment. So we are to be very skeptical of any man who claims to speak for God but who gives no evidence of humility. That's always a red flag to look for when there is not humility. He might wear sheep's clothing, but that is not proof of true humility. There's nothing more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. There's nothing more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. Godly virtue is impossible for the natural man, the unregenerate man, to imitate for any extended period of time because it simply demands too much. It demands God's indwelling Holy Spirit to produce. The natural man will eventually show his true colors. It says in Matthew 12, 34 and 35, the uh, Lord is speaking here. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things." And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. That ties in exactly with what the Lord said here in the Sermon on the Mount in his invitation part of it. Furthermore, a false prophet cannot have his teaching put under the scrutiny of the divine light of Holy Scripture because it will always clearly show up as false. When Isaiah was telling the people how to judge a false prophet from a true prophet, he said, to the law... And to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. Everywhere in our day, there are professional Christians and there are phony preachers and phony evangelists who are marketing their wares on fancy platters decorated in such a way that people do not know what they are getting. They use the language of Orthodox Christianity. They use all kinds of pious and religious cliches, certain buzzwords, you know, such as born again even, and they are being eagerly consumed by the undiscerning multitudes. However, to help you discern, pay attention to this, whoever you're listening to, whether it's on television or radio or even if you come to bible study always you need you need to develop your discerning skills all of us do to help you discern remember this there will be in a false prophet or a false teacher there will be no narrow gate in the message it is very possible for a, a man's message to say nothing that is untrue and yet be terribly wrong For the problem can stem from what he or she does not say. He may leave out some very indispensable points of the Christian faith. And that is what can make him so dangerous. I don't know whether I should say this or not, but I'll stand the risk of offending somebody. But this is part of the danger of the Saddleback Community Churches strategy in the purpose-driven church, uh, in their appeal to the unsaved. Uh, Dr. Rick Warren says this. This is a direct quote. He says, try to find scriptures that specifically relate to the benefits that Christ can bring into a person's life. He says, try to pick positive scriptures that talk about the benefits of Christ. You want to pick out scriptures that are very positive." end of quote positive 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 don't tell the unsaved anything negative now i'm not saying that dr rick warren is not a christian no 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 don't get that i'm not equating him as a false prophet at all but i'm saying beware of this kind of teaching that that avoids the narrow way that doesn't say that we are sinners i'll get more into this as i go on paul's words in Acts 20:20 20, 20, where he said I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God a telltale characteristic <clears throat> of a false teacher is that he does not say anything that is offensive to the natural man his message is one of comfort is one that soothes but never warns of judgment he wants everyone to speak well of him he wants everyone to like him which is what jeremiah said about the false prophets of his time he said they dress the wound of my people like they put a band-aid on it they dress the wound of my people as though they were not serious Well, sin is serious. You can't just put a Band-Aid on it. It is very, very serious. He went on, Jeremiah said, they say, these are the false prophets, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Isaiah told us that they speak smooth things and prophesy illusions. There is nothing in their message to make anyone uneasy. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. We don't want to make them uneasy. We don't want to take them out of their comfort zones. Rather, they give their audience false assurance and they characterize those who preach otherwise as being offensive and negative and judgmental and hard-hearted and doomsayers. Isn't that what they said about Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the other prophets, true prophets? Oh, get rid of them. They're just so negative. They're doomsayers. They're legalistic. They're offensive. Get rid of them. The result of their work, however, is disastrous. False prophets come to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. They are a true shepherd's worst nightmare. So the Lord says to be on our guard. He says beware of false prophets. They may not slip into our churches, as we said, as blatant heretics. Because that would be far too obvious. You know, they don't come running in denying the deity of Christ. We would all pick up on that. That's too obvious. But they will come in using all the right language. They'll have the right credentials. They'll seem so very pleasant. They may not reveal themselves, you know, like I said, openly denying the sinfulness of man's universal condition or his subsequent penalty for sin or the substitutionary atonement, the destiny of destruction in hell for all unbelievers, the deity of Christ, the need for true repentance, and being born again by the Holy Spirit of God. They may not deny those things. They may just ignore these fundamental doctrines of the faith and not mention them at all. They may merely talk about the love of God and ignore his holiness and his justice if you're in a church, let me just say this. I don't know what the churches are teaching out there because I only go to one. So you know. But if you're in a church where all you hear week after week is comforting, soothing messages about the love of God, love of God, love of God, and you never hear the full counsel of God about his justice and about the reality of hell, I would seriously warn you to beware and get out. And don't have the fear of man. You know, just because you're... Family has always gone there. Please. You're going to stand stand one-on-one before God. And if you have small children, all the more reason to get out of there where they preach the full counsel of God. They may talk about human self-esteem and not poverty of spirit. Beware. They may talk about those people in the world who are deprived. You know, they're poor. There are many deprived people. But not about all the people the world over who are depraved. Beware of that kind of message. They will talk about the universal fatherhood of God for all men, but they will say nothing about his unique fatherhood to only those who are his children through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will talk about all that God has to give us, but they talk very little about what we should give to him by way of our obedience. They will talk a lot about health and wealth and happiness for us, but not about being a living sacrifice for him and knowing Christ through the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Dr. Kent Hughes, again, I quote from him, him, he says, quote, false prophets talk about God. They wax eloquent on Jesus and even talk about his death on the cross. Many do not see them as heretics. They are likable, truly nice people, pleasant to be around. Sometimes churches grow under their ministries. But the following years are tragic, bringing in a sea of unbelieving children and empty pews. End of quote. That's the danger of the false message, isn't it? If there isn't true repentance, if man does not know he's truly sinful and he needs to repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and invite him into their heart and live for him, and they're, they're not told about his justice and his holiness, then the next generation just sort of slips away because they might have gone forward or they might have said a little sinner's prayer, but it wasn't heartfelt. It wasn't real. They didn't understand repentance And a changed life. If you're in a church, if there's no younger generation, that's another red flag. There needs to be young people to keep the baton going. And if they're they're not there, something is wrong. Some of the telltale bad fruits produced from a bad tree are, these are things to look for. Bad fruit from a bad tree. Pride, number one. Arrogance. Resentfulness, especially to rebuke or correction; a vengeful spirit, egotism, self-indulgence, laziness, a concern with money, prestige, popular concern with popular being popular, um, or concern, a concern with having power, being selfish, and of course sexual promiscuity. All of these are bad fruit. To look for men with these type of fruit in their lives do not give evidence of belonging to Jesus Christ. You see, a wolf can wear sheep's clothing, but he cannot grow a sheep's coat, can he? You can go around and you can stick grapes on thorns, and you can you can uh, even punch figs onto thistles. But they cannot of themselves grow there. It is possible to admire and even to subscribe to the qualities of the Beatitudes and say, yes, oh, they're wonderful, and yet not possess them from within. Appearances appearances can only be kept for so long. Eventually time will reveal the true nature of the true sheep's coat and genuine fruit. The tragic end of the false prophet is the same tragic end for all of those who are on the broad road to, dis- to destruction. And that is that they will be hewn down, Jesus says in verse 19, and cast into the fire. And what does that represent? Hell, the lake of fire. Peter said that they bring upon themselves swift destruction. And more tragic, as Peter goes on, he sa- it says is that many follow their pernicious ways. Many. That's why it is so important to sharpen our sword and to have spiritual discernment. Many sheep are basically dumb. We're pretty dumb. But hopefully, I mean, well, truthfully, we know the true sheep should know the voice of the good shepherd and follow him and him alone. So the Lord Jesus, first of all, warned men of the false prophets who were actually worse than ravenous wolves. If you think about it, they're even worse than wolves because wolves can only destroy the flesh of the sheep. But false prophets are spiritual beasts. They're called brute beasts by both Peter and Jude because they can destroy the eternal soul of men by deceiving them into remaining on the Broadway to destruction. And I should back up a a minute and say that... um, a true sheep cannot lose his eternal soul. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation, <clears throat> in case you misunderstood what I said there. Christians need to know the scriptures, and that's why I assume you're all here this morning. We really need to, especially in these latter days, we need to know the scriptures so as to help identify the false prophets Uh, from the true and we need to know so we can warn those who are deceived we need to know how to detect the characteristics and the teaching of true righteousness so as to identify the unrighteous pretenders and the self-deceived it's like they do when they in banks don't they they teach the bankers the tellers the true money And that's what we need to be doing is studying the the true message, true doctrine, and that way the counterfeit shows up right away. We don't need to go out there and be studying all the different varied forms of counterfeit money and and counterfeit doctrine. We just need to know the true doctrine, and that way we'll recognize the counterfeit as soon as it shows up, hopefully. All right, let's um, look next at the second danger, Having first shown us the danger of being misled and deceived by false prophets, the Lord Jesus next warned his listeners of an even greater danger, which is that of being self-deceived into thinking that we are on the right road to God through Jesus Christ, when in reality, we are not. You see, it is not only the false prophet who can deceive others about the way of salvation— men also do a very good job of deceiving themselves. So let's see what the Lord had to say in verses 21 to 23. Very sobering words where he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And by the way, what is the Father's will? That thou shalt believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. All right, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Mm-mm. The Lord made the frightening statement that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what is scary about this statement is that the Lord Jesus is talking about people who acknowledge him as what? As Lord, that he is divine. They believe that he is Lord. Kyrios is the Greek word. Uh, Not only do they believe that he is Lord, but they are even fervent and zealous in their profession lord lord so they have emotion along with their profession furthermore and we find this from what they say they had made their profession of christ a public matter you know because they demonstrated supposedly they demonstrated their allegiance to christ before others you know they they cast out demons that isn't something you do in a closet it wasn't like well that's just a something private between me and God kind of a thing. They were out there doing wonderful things in his name, they said. So they made it a public profession. And in addition to this, there are those three claims that they make to have done wonderful works in whose name? In his name, in Christ's name, which indicates, too, that they believed in his supernatural powers. Now, this sounds like a model... A confession of faith, doesn't it? Obviously, the Lord was not talking here about someone who is an anti-Christian. He's not talking about someone who's a Muslim or a Jew who doesn't, you know, believe in Christ. Uh, someone who's a Buddhist or a, a Hindu or an atheist. He's talking about people who called him Lord and who believe themselves to be Christians on the right road to their heavenly reward. And it is to this group of people, and remember, he said there will be many, that's scary. He said there will be many such people, not just a few. It's to this group of people that he said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, this many includes many people sitting in our churches today. Many of them right here in our local communities. My fear is that maybe even someone in here today, I don't know, is something we all need to you know, do a self-examination. Many people who profess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and who even engage in all kinds of good deeds in his name, even some wonderful works, many wonderful works. Have there been many wonderful works done in the name of Jesus out in the world? by people who really didn't know him? Oh, yes. Yet Jesus said that he does not know them. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't know who they are. Obviously, he knows who they are because he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Rather, it means that he doesn't know them intimately as his own. It says in Nahum 1.7, the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. He doesn't have a personal relationship with them because they have not taken refuge in him apart from genuine repentance of sin and genuine faith in Christ's atoning death and his shed blood for one's sin sins there is no entrance into heaven there are sacrifices that the lord will not accept one is the gift of sincerity you know some people wrongly believe that the lord should receive them into heaven because they meant well They were genuinely sincere in what they believed and in what they did. Is sincerity enough? Is is well-meaning enough? Another is the gift of service. Some people remember all the good that they have done, and they think that God owes them acceptance into his eternal kingdom because of their basic human decency. You hear this from a lot of people who go to church is well, I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things. I believe in Jesus. You know, up here, they profess him with their mouths, but they're not saved. They're not truly born again. And when I say born again, I mean saved. You know, where they've repented of their sin and, and the Holy Spirit has uh, indwelt them. And They're a child of God. Yet another is the gift of spiritual quest which can be through you know some people think that because they um, they go through all kinds of supposedly christian rituals and rites and uh, participate in certain ordinances etc um that they'll they'll be okay some even bring to him their gift of guilt they do they do all kinds of self harm or they they flagellate themselves they beat themselves believing that if they feel sorry enough, God will accept them. You know, um, that what they're really trying to do is earn, you know, trying to pay for their own sins. Martin Luther had a word for all these attempted gifts. He said, what makes you think that God is more pleased with your good deeds than he is with his blessed son? Good question. Yes, it's true that we must bring an offering, a sacrifice to God but it cannot be something of our own making it must be the sacrifice that he himself made for us we simply must acknowledge with our hearts his sacrifice a sacrifice must be equal to the offense committed now because our sin is against an infinite God we need a sacrifice therefore of infinite value do any of you have a sacrifice of infinite value that you can offer to God? Never, never, never. So it logically follows that only God can, sacrifice, can uh, supply the sacrifice that he himself demands. And that is the essence of the gospel. God met his own requirements for us. The righteous died for the unrighteous in order to bring us, the unrighteous, to God, the righteous. Now, before I forget, I want to mention two things, to stress two very important things in the Lord's tragic statement. Um, I don't want to overlook these. First of all, one is his claim to deity by way of his use of the personal pronoun I. You pick up on that? He says... I never knew you. And in the context, there is no doubt that he is acting as the presiding judge where? At the great white throne judgment. If you don't think this must have shocked his listeners, it did. Look at verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Here was a clear claim to be none other than God the judge at the great white throne judgment who says, I never knew you, and sends people to hell. Clear claim to deity right there. Okay, the other thing I want to point out is that he said, I never knew you. So this is not talking about a loss of salvation on the part of those people who were consigned to eternal damnation. If that was the case... He would have said, at least to some of them, he would have said, I once knew you, but you fell away. You didn't hold on to your salvation. You turned away from me, you know, or some such statement. He would have said, I once knew you, but now you're lost. But he didn't say that. By saying never, I never knew you, it is clear that these professing Christ followers were never saved at all. He never knew them. Also, take note of something supremely important. In verse 21, Jesus said that it is the one who does the will of his Father in heaven who will enter into heaven. Mere lip profession of Jesus as Lord and mere belief in the facts of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are not enough to be saved. A lot of people Make a lip profession, and a lot of people know the facts about his life, do they not? Even the devils believe who Jesus is. Their doctrine is more correct than most Christians. They really know their doctrine, they know who he is, and they have a, a lot more sense in some cases because they tremble. As mentioned last week, it's not enough to just stand at the narrow gate representing Christ and admire it or admire him. It's not enough to just stand there without taking. Action, remember he said strive to enter. You have to have, there has to be action involved. Um, Neither is it sufficient to agree with Jesus and with his teaching and even with his way of salvation. There is nothing wrong, of course, with admiration of Jesus and agreement with his way of salvation. In fact, you cannot be saved without those things. But they are not enough if we do not act upon what we believe. In other words, it's not enough to just say that we believe if we do not do the will of the Father. So is this referring to works by salvation, salvation by works? No. The context is the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So he's referring to a profound heart obedience that is not only on the surface, like the scribes and the Pharisees, but it permeates one's inner being, as well. And that's what we've been looking at throughout this entire sermon. The one who does the will of the father will accept Christ into his or her heart and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was an external only righteousness, because his righteousness will be God's righteousness imputed to him. You see, all true Christians say, Lord, Lord, Right, All true Christians say, Lord, Lord, but not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. You can be absolutely correct in your belief about Christ's nature and his person. You can be correct about his substitutionary atonement on your behalf, his death for your sins. You can be right about his resurrection, bodily resurrection, and even about his return. And you may even have fought against heresies of the faith and argued church doctrine and yet not be saved. That's a scary thought. One may be able to do great things and even get great results, but that says absolutely nothing about salvation. Using Christ's name doesn't mean anything. Even Judas was able to cast out demons in the Lord's name and do some amazing miracles so the way to test ourselves is to look below the surface do not look at the apparent results or at the works at the miracles or at the creeds of faith but rather look to see if our lives conform to the the uh, to that of a true kingdom citizen which has been described for us in detail in the sermon on the mount Are you, for example, poor in spirit? Do you understand your own spiritual bankruptcy apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you humble? Are you meek? Do you really mourn over your sin? When you commit sin, are you mournful? Does the Holy Spirit, is he grieved? Are you convicted about your sins? Do you have uh, genuine mourning? Do you have the strength to stand up for the truth and for God and for others, no matter what others might think of you or do to you? Can you love and pray for even your enemies, those who hurt you and despitefully use you, those who persecute you, those who have hurt you unbelievably? Can you forgive them and even ask God to bless them? Do you have a merciful spirit Are you compassionate toward other people? Do you want to give them the mercy that God has shown to you? Are you able to genuinely forgive? I think I just said that one, but that's an important one. Um, Do you have compassion toward those who are hurting? Would you be like the good Samaritan and do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Do you love your neighbor? Do you care to reach those who are lost or in physical need? What is your attitude about the treasures of this world? Do you hoard them for for your own sake? Um, uh, Do you worship mammon or God? Do you worry about them to the point of almost idolatry? You know, we can go through the sermon and examine ourselves, can't we? That is the best test of all, to do a self-examination. Go through the sermon. We've taken a year on it. You know it pretty well now, don't you? You should go through it and say, is this me? Is this really me? And you know what? If you find out yes, the answer is basically yes, and that's the direction of your heart. You are probably really a genuine Christian. A life that claims to believe in Christ but does not reflect his righteousness has no part in him. Faith without works is dead. Even if doctrine is right, the one is unrighteous who does not recognize and confess his sins and inwardly hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. That's another thing. Do you hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God? A true believer will not be perfect by any means in his practice of God's righteousness, but that's going to be the direction in which he or she is headed. It is the desired direction of his heart and will. We need to know about one more thing and to be aware aware of what is called believism. Some call it easy believism. And that is a subtle danger, especially for those who are brought up in Christian homes, where the right doctrine has always been taught and has always been accepted and believed in the minds, you know, up here, but has never been personally internalized into the heart so that Christ is truly known as Lord. It's a danger, believism is a danger in putting one's trust in his own belief rather than on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference in believing in a creed, even if it's the right creed, and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ when we believe on we're putting our full trust and faith on him what the Lord is seriously warning about is the fatal danger of trusting only in what we say and forgetting that the very essence of Christianity is that it is a life which is to be lived out it is the life of God himself being lived out in the soul of man 1 John is an epistle, uh, we're studying it right now, my husband is teaching through 1 John, it's an epistle that attempts to correct this very danger of, of believism. There were those in his day, as there are in our day today, who, say, who said that they believed in Christ, and yet their lives were in contradiction to what they professed, and their practice, in other words, did not match their profession. Um, So he said, he that says I know him, this is John speaking, he that says I know him and keeps not his commandments is what? Is a liar and the truth is not in him. And elsewhere he said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. This is something I want you to really um, be concerned about with your own children those of you who have children in the home. Please examine yourselves and your children, and don't take this passage lightly, whatever you do. I guess of all the passages we've studied, don't take this one lightly. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you or your loved ones, especially your children where you have an influence over them, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you or them are all right with God if you aren't or if they are not. If you have been placing your trust in your salvation merely on a profession that you made at one point in time or some religious activity that you have performed or on some one-time emotional experience that you had and there is little or no evidence of Sermon on the Mount righteousness in your life, then without any further delay, please, please come fully to Christ, fully. Repent of your sins, confess to him, your faith in his death and his shed blood on your behalf and surrender to him, surrender to his will and to his guidance for your life. You know, do whatever it takes, do whatever it takes for you to know and for your children to know or your spouse to know that they will never hear those horrible, final, eternally dooming words, I never knew you. Depart from me. You don't want to hear those words, do you? And you don't want to hear have your children hear those words? Oh, please, please, please. We don't want any of our loved ones, our friends, our acquaintances to hear those words. So it is very important not to just give an easy believism type of message. People need to understand there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a changed life. There needs to be real fruit, the fruit of righteousness, such as is described for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we spent a year studying it. Do you know him? More importantly, does he know you? Let's pray. Father, it is the prayer of my heart that the day of judgment will not reveal anything tragically shocking for those of us who have heard today the grave warning of your son. May the spirit of God truly stir up fear in any heart here that may not know for certain that she has not been deceived either by another or by herself to think that she is on the narrow way when in fact she's not. Holy Spirit do your work we pray in Christ's name Amen